Broadcasting from the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham, this is Due South on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tiberi. Hello, Friday. Greetings, listeners. Welcome into our North Carolina news and politics roundup. Here in our studios are Colin Campbell, Capitol Bureau Chief at WUNC, Mary Helen Moore, Durham reporter at the News and Observer, Caitlin Bird is online, senior politics reporter at The Post and Courier. That's in Charleston, South Carolina. Got a primary to talk about here in a bit. And Jason DeBruin, also here in studio, caffeinated and rearing to go. Jason's the health reporter, but for one more day here at WUNC. Nice to see you all. Good morning. Good to be here. Hey, Jeff. All right. Plenty of news morsels to digest across the hour. Let's kick it off with some sounds of the week. Montage, please. We're really happy with the turnout that we've had so far. It's on par with 2020. North Carolina House Speaker Tim Moore has gotten the endorsement of former President Donald Trump. This is not a child's game where if you don't like the four outcomes of the court's ruling, you say, oh, uh, I take it back. Do over. This landmark education funding case reaches its 30-year anniversary this year, and it's not over. At its center is the question of whether the state is meeting its constitutional duty to provide a sound basic education for all North Carolina students. There's been an overall reduction in violent crime, but the increases in homicides, rapes, and shooting incidents come as the city council is considering whether to bring the technology shot spotter back to East and Southeast Durham. Those who vote in person do get stickers. Anybody get their sticker yet? Did you get your sticker, a little unicorn Wake County sticker? Waiting for it. I Usually I procrastinate to the last day, but now that I know that you get a cooler sticker if you vote early, I'm going early. It's, it's not an I voted sticker. It I is a it. colorful, it's literally a unicorn sticker. A fifth grader design, is that right? Or eighth uh, grader? Or yeah, 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 it's all school yeah. design. We're going to talk about stickers later in the program. Lots to get to, uh, including a couple of important education stories. Leandro lands back before the state Supreme Court this week. Uh, and that Durham pay kerfuffle uh, got sent forward a little bit uh, this week. There's uh, an update to get to in a bit, but let's begin with early voting. It is in full swing. The 17-day period to cast ballots early runs through next weekend. Then, of course, polls are open for 13 hours on Election Day. Early voting turnout thus far down slightly. Colin, how much does that matter? What can you tell us about participation in early voting? Yes, a little bit under 2020, which, of course, the state has also grown a lot since 2020. So uh, I guess not all that surprising, given we actually had much more competitive primaries in 2020 this year. You know, if you're a Democrat or looking at the Democratic ballot, Joe Biden's going to be your only choice for president on the Republican ballot. uh, You know, it's not that big of a competition. and All but two candidates have have dropped out at this point. Uh, What we are seeing is a little bit higher uh, participation in the Republican primary, more people drawing Republican ballots, particularly who are registered unaffiliated, where they get Mm -hmm. to choose which ballot. that's likely because of the state contest. There's more uh, competitive races on the Republican side, whereas the Democratic races, a lot of them seem kind of like foregone conclusions. There just yeah. aren't that many nail biters as to who's going to win in some of these Democratic races. Colin Campbell, WNC Capitol Bureau Chief, uh, go next level for us. What Republican races are we talking about? Because as a reminder, there is kind of an uncompetitive Republican presidential primary at this point. We'll get to South Carolina in a bit. Perhaps there's a, a spoiler or a diverging path coming up. But here in North Carolina, there's no U.S. Senate race. Uh, so what is it that is churning Republicans out? So you've got the governor's race. Obviously, uh, Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson sort of considered to be the front runner, but he's up against State Treasurer Dale Falwell, who I think has seen some some improvement in the polls, although he's still kind of behind. Uh, Bill Graham, a Salisbury attorney who's spending millions of his own 
fortune on TV ads attacking Robinson. And then you've got uh, about five different competitive congressional Republican primaries. This is a result of redistricting. Mm-hmm. We've got a lot of Democrats who are cycling out because now their district won't elect them because it's a Republican district and a lot of opportunity for uh, new Republicans to come in. Uh, and so you're seeing a lot of spending, a lot of ads in these races because whoever wins the Republican primary in a good chunk of North Carolina is going to most likely become a new member of Congress here. So that seems to be what is sort of driving people on the Republican side. And of course, there's all these other uh, council of state races, lieutenant governor, uh, state treasurer, various other things that are going to be on the ballot as well. Remind us if you know off the top of your head, throwing you on a spot on the spot here, there are 14 congressional races in North Carolina. The 13th congressional district is kind of this like uh, C going an inverted C going the wrong direction kind of hugs the, the yeah, eastern part of the triangle. Probably, yeah. How many darn candidates are there? Yeah, so that's the one I, I sort of describe it as wrapping around the triangle because it starts the Virginia border in Caswell County, goes east around Smithfield and Johnston County, and then cuts back over to Sanford, gets all the sort of Republican-leaning suburban, exurban areas. They have 14 candidates running, of which four or five are spending, I think, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of their own dollars uh, on these races buying ads. So if you watch TV in the triangle, even if you're not actually in that district at first, for voting purposes, you're seeing a ton of these ads, and they're all about immigration. They're all about the border. They all kind of seem alike, and there's a lot of money flowing to decide who gets that. But with 14 candidates, we're probably seeing a runoff, a second primary in a few months uh, between the top two vote getters if no one reaches 30% on uh, primary day. I am not sure if that's a waxing or a waning crescent of a congressional district, but it's an absurd looking congressional district. My friendly journalistic reminder, that is gerrymandered to heck, just as Democrats have gerrymandered districts in this state for a century. Well, we touched on a little bit, but I, I mean, because the districts are so gerrymandered, these are effectively the, the, the primary winners are going to be the ones almost certainly that are elected right in, in the general election. I think people are maybe a little bit used to this in some hyper-local elections. I remember I used to live in Union County, and I would I'm, I'm a register unaffiliated, but I would often vote in the Republican primary because voting for a county commissioner, for example, um, again, you know, in that primary, that's going to be the one who ultimately wins in the general election. And I wonder if people are starting to pay attention to that and realizing that, okay, maybe I tend to lean one you know direction or the other, but I'm registered unaffiliated and I live in a district that is the other party from what I normally do. Well, let me vote in that one instead because I want to have a say in who my congressperson is going to be. We're going to get to primaries a little bit more. I don't know if it's in-depth or it's wider lens. That might make different sense to to different listeners. We're going to go maybe 1,500 feet or so here in the next segment. We're going to talk about the different nature of primaries, open primaries, closed primaries, partially open, partially closed primaries. I mean, it's interesting. It's also just really confusing, and I don't know if I'm quite caffeinated for it at the moment. Uh, I want to bring in Caitlin Bird, reporter with The Post and Courier in uh, Holy City, South Carolina. And I want to, I guess, first tee up to you, Caitlin, a question about North Carolina, because this week the sitting House Speaker, Tim Moore, who is running for one of these congressional districts that we've been talking about uh, as a Republican seeking the nomination, got the endorsement of former President Donald Trump. And I'm curious from your perspective uh, if that is a huge deal, a meh deal, or a who knows deal. Like how important is Trump's endorsement uh, as we think about it uh, pertaining to House Speaker Tim Moore? I mean, it, as far as I'm concerned, getting the, the Trump seal of approval still matters to Republicans, whether they live in North or South Carolina, um, whether they live anywhere in the country. It still means something to a core constituency of Republican primary voters. And to your point, when you're talking about different congressional districts and we were talking about races at the hyperlocal and even the state legislative level, you know, 
those little things that can help put someone over the edge matter. And depending on who you're talking to, they would argue that getting a Trump endorsement isn't some little thing. It's a big deal. The Republican presidential primary takes place tomorrow in South Carolina. That is where you sit. Donald Trump, as a reminder, has carried the first two caucuses in the nation, Iowa and Nevada, by overwhelming margins. He also claimed the first primary of this 2024 cycle, that being New Hampshire. There, he defeated Nikki Haley by 11 points. Now, Haley, the former South Carolina governor, is looking for some home cooking, stew, frogmore, something or other. Uh, could the dynamics in this shift, and maybe let me let me tee it up this way, Caitlin, what would have to transpire for Haley to log an upset tomorrow? An act of God. Um, <laughs> Simple as that. Act of God. You've got us laughing here. Full in Durham. stop. <laughs> Full stop. Uh, I mean, and, and I think it's also important to think... Uh, to, you know, use our ears here, right? Because, you know, political reporters, we have to be so finely tuned to the small nuances as candidates change and tweak their messaging. I think it's very telling that we've gone from hearing Nikki Haley saying and almost inviting a head-to-head -head contest in her home state of South Carolina here with Donald Trump and winking at that coming back to her sweet home state. Then she said in New Hampshire that she hopes for a strong finish in South Carolina. Well, now this week she gave a speech built as a state of the race race speech that sent national press all a flutter uh, because folks were wondering, is this it? Is she going to drop out? And boy, howdy, she's not. Uh, she got up there and said, I'm not going anywhere. It doesn't matter what happens here on Saturday. I'll see you guys in Michigan. So it's really interesting. But the reason I bring up that progression is because it is telling. She went from saying, you know, speaking from a place of confidence about the outcome in South Carolina to then hedging to say strong finish, whatever that determinant may be, to now say, Saying, results be damned, I'm going ahead. Colin, a quick thought here. Yeah, so going into North Carolina, she seems optimistic about uh, at least trying in the state. She's got a rally scheduled in Charlotte after the South Carolina primary, but the polling we're seeing uh, pretty much mirrors what you're seeing in South Carolina. It was going to be really hard for her to uh, not even close to a victory here in North Carolina when it gets to that point. Caitlin, I'm coming up on a break, but just quickly, we might get into this a little bit uh, more deeply on the other side. Uh, how long do you think, as of right now, February 23rd, how long does Nikki Haley remain in this race? Well, she said she wants to stay in through at least Super Tuesday, and I think that's the best bar th metric that we have right now. We are 11 days from Super Tuesday. Of course, North Carolina is one of the many states uh, that will uh, be finalizing its primary results that night. And many results will be uh, finalized, not only as we think about March 5th, but also uh, November 5th. We will know much, if not all, uh, of the congressional delegation come March 5th. Our North Carolina Friday News Roundup is uh, just beginning here on Due South on WUNC. Colin Campbell, Jason DeBruin, uh, as well as Caitlin Bird have been part of our conversation here on the front end. We'll welcome in Mary Helen Moore, Durham reporter at the News and Observer in uh, just a bit here on listener-supported North Carolina Public Radio. A couple of friendly reminders. You can catch up with programming from the week on of Due South uh, at our website, DueSouthRadio.org. And if you've got questions, comments, or uh, other little ruminations for us, maybe uh, hate mail or love letters, you can send them to DueSouth at WUNC.org. I'm Jeff Tiberi. We'll be back in a moment on North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. Hi again. It's Due South on WNC. I'm Jeff Tiberi. 
Today is the 23rd of February. February 21st holds a couple of important musical birthdays here in North Carolina, so we're going to note them a couple of days late. Rhiannon Giddens turned 47 on Wednesday, the co-founder of the Carolina Chocolate Drops, who had gone on, has gone on to a successful solo career, is a seven-time Grammy nominee, two-time Grammy winner as well as a MacArthur Genius Fellow. And Wednesday would have been Nina Simone's 91st birthday. The legendary singer was born Eunice Wayman in Tryon, North Carolina. That's out west in Polk County in 1933. Raised in the Jim Crow South and part of a large family, her mother was a Methodist preacher. She studied at Juilliard and then applied for a scholarship to Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia. But as she told the BBC later in life, quote, they turned me down because I was black and I never got over it, close quote. She took a gig in Atlantic City, playing the piano and agreeing to sing, something her parents wouldn't have approved of, so she changed her name to Nina Simone. Her debut album in 1964 followed the assassination of Medgar Evers and the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham. That bombing, of course, killed four young black girls. Simone's music during the 1960s elevated her to the status of a pivotal figure in the civil rights movement, providing voice and reflection for the black community. Nina Simone spent the final 10 years of her life in southern France, died from breast cancer in 2003. She was 70 years old. If you ever have a historical nugget story, birthday, something you want us to try to weave into our North Carolina news and politics roundups here on Do South, please send me uh, an email. Send us an email, south at wnc.org. Any thoughts on Nina Simone? I've heard there's an attempt to uh, restore her childhood home as a museum in the town of Tryon. So one more reason to visit one of North Carolina's more underrated mountain towns between Asheville and uh, South Carolina. Virginia resident, longtime North Carolina, Virginia native, longtime North Carolina resident Colin Campbell. You've been to Tryon. Yeah, I've been to Tryon. The uh, neighboring town is Columbus. My uh, in-laws live in Greenville, South Carolina. It's only about 45 minutes away. So it's a nice little mountain escape in, in that corner of the world. A hundred counties in our state. You've now been to how many? Nine? I think I'm at about 95, 95. maybe. Yeah. This Trying to get to 100 this year. This is impressive. We will honor Colin with some sort of merit badge when that <laughs> happens here on Due South. Uh, Colin Campbell in studio, along with Mary Helen Moore, Caitlin Bird, and Jason DeBruin. We're going to get back to politics in a moment, but uh, Mary Helen Moore, please, let's check in on what is happening, not happening with Durham Public Schools as it pertains to the pay kerfuffle we've been chatting about here on the Roundup for a month. Another meeting this week, and what is kind of, I guess, to get us started, the top line uh, item from DPS. Yeah, the last six weeks have been just absolute chaos in Durham Public Schools. So last night there was a big vote that we've been waiting on for a while, which is what it what's going to happen with pay for the rest of this school year. And so what they decided to do is throw out all the salaries that they promised last year, that they promised in January, and just go back to what was paid last year at 11%, and that's what people are going to get. Okay. There's been an issue here with having the money to do these raises. 11% is, an, is a sizable raise. Where is the, Do they have the money? They say they do have the money, yeah. So um, the county commissioners approved an $11 million increase to the budget last year, and that wasn't enough to get them the wages that they wanted to give, but it's enough for that 11%. Okay. Uh, What are you following as a a journalist, as a reporter, moving forward on on this saga, this story? Uh, what What are you hearing, whether it's angst or more calls for equity? Like, What are the next steps in this, if you have a sense of that? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So what I'm following is what's going to happen with staff. Are they going to leave or are they going to stay? And and not just for the rest of this year, but what's going to happen next year? Because a lot of people are really, really worried. You know, this these raises that they promised last year in October, they were they were designed to um, bring people up to what they were paid, um, to what people across the market are paid, and um, with a specific emphasis on the upper, the people with the most experience. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of industries are familiar with wage compression, you know, starting salary goes up, up, up. But the people who have been there for years, maybe those those raises every year don't keep up right. with that. And it's so this line. was, the whole plan was to um, address that. And these are for staff, like, you know, they're, they're cafeteria workers, they're custodians, they're mechanics, they're interpreters. 80% of these people make less than a starting teacher. Mm. So um, the whole idea kind of was to make that competitive. Right. Make people whole and improve equity. And I think that, you know, it's worth the reminder here, and Jason DeBruin, I'm coming to you in a moment, that you need all kinds of support staff to run all different kinds of entities. My wife is in the healthcare field, and I like to, to point out, like, yeah, you need doctors to run a hospital, but you also need med techs. You also need phlebotomists. You need a number of people so that a health clinic, a hospital can function. You cannot run a school without uh, without bus drivers, without mechanics, without cafeteria workers, without janitorial staff, without occupational and physical therapists. There are a lot of people that make it go. Teachers, of course, are incredibly important, but not just teachers. It is not lost on me, and I do not think that it's a coincidence that yesterday was a big Leandro hearing. I mean, we're going to get to the Leandro probably a little bit later, but if there was more money to go around across North Carolina, then people would be paid more competitive salaries to begin with and would have been paid that much for the past decade or, 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 or even multiple decades now that we've been talking about Leandro. And so it's it's very, I think, telling and interesting to me that while we have sort of this big Leandro case that we sort of think about at like the Supreme Court level, here is a nuts and bolts in real life thing that's happening in Durham exactly because of what advocates are saying Leandro has caused. And that is not enough money to go around in public schools. Now, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not the one to say whether or not it's enough money, but I do know that these uh, well, teachers to begin with, but especially these support staff are not making competitive salaries when you compare them to what people can make, you know, in other parts of the economy writ large. And so, you know, if we're not funding schools at appropriate levels, we're not going to get enough talented people working in those schools. And ultimately what suffers is the kids. And I, I do have a bit of a fear for what's going to happen to North Carolina's economy in 15, 20 years if we continue to just make cuts around the edges at our school system, provide, you know, what is maybe a baseline education, but it's certainly not fantastic. And when all these kids start to graduate, enter the workforce and become our next, you know, drivers of the economy, what's going to happen to us? And just some of the experience really comes into play. I mean, Mary Helen, I think you covered the ceremony this week for this heroic bus driver who got the kids off the bus uh, when the bus caught fire last week, a school bus in Durham County. And that was one where it's like, Clearly, her training played a role in being able to know, like, oh, crap, the bus is, you know, filling up with smoke. Let's get these kids off and get them off safely, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it matters. It makes a difference. 
We're, uh, we're rolling along here on our North Carolina News and Politics Roundup on Due South. Mary Helen Moore, Colin Campbell, Jason DeBruin, and Caitlin Bird in the car in Charleston, South Carolina. I like to illustrate things occasionally here uh, in radio. Caitlin has been uh, crisscrossing the Palmetto State here in recent weeks, covering the presidential primary, the lead up to the Republican presidential primary. Uh, you told us a few minutes ago, Caitlin, that it is going to take an act of God for former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley to prevail tomorrow. Uh, tell us, I guess, next level more specifically, what you're watching for, what any indicators of surprise might be, uh, and where you'll be doing this from tomorrow. Yes. Uh, so first of all, speaking of an act of God, I apologize in advance because it is starting to rain here. So we will see whether tomorrow's results literally put a damper on Nikki Haley's presidential bids. Um, I will be based in the Charleston area tomorrow. That's where Nikki Haley is going to be holding her election night watch party. Donald Trump is going to be in the Midlands in Columbia, specifically holding his party. Uh, I'm going to be looking to see how things shape out by congressional level. We were talking about congressional districts earlier. Well, let me tell you, uh, in Charleston, I'm actually sitting right now in the uh, gerrymandered first congressional j- district. I said, uh, because we're still waiting to get an official final word from the Supreme Court that has not yet come down. Um, it was ruled a racial gerrymander uh, last year, and uh, it's been tied up in the courts. So for now, the lines are as they are. But the first is especially important because this is where Nancy Mace won, despite not getting Trump's backing and endorsement in her 2022 reelection bid. So this time, Nancy Mace has actually supported and endorsed Donald Trump in Nikki Haley's own backyard. So I'm really curious to see if the Charleston Coastal Republicans here, which this district also stretches all the way down to Hilton Head, um, I'm curious to see if the first is the most receptive audience for Nikki Haley and her message. Things play out regionally here just like it does in North Carolina, but almost to an even more intense degree because we only have 46 counties here instead of the full 100. So I'm really curious to see if the first gives Nikki Haley three delegates, uh, 50 are up for grabs here, but North uh, South Carolina is a hybrid winner take all, but there's an option that you can win by Congressional District 2. Caitlin Bird. Greenville, North Carolina's own, now a reporter for the Charleston Post and Courier, uh, has been joining us here on Due South. Caitlin uh, has been generous with her time. She, uh, as I mentioned, has been crisscrossing the state. So uh, we're going to effectively release you. Please have fun reporting on this final day. Thank you for your insights and knowledge. And we'll catch up with you at some point uh, again here in 2024. You guys take care in North Carolina. I miss that state. Have fun tomorrow. Thank you, Caitlin. Uh, All right. So Caitlin mentioned the delegates that are available in South Carolina, and I'm going to attempt to do something dangerous here in the next few minutes. Uh, And I'm going to welcome Mary Helen and Jason to help uh, Colin and and myself on this, which is just kind of give a lay of the land of primaries and just a little bit of a civics reminder to listeners because it's like, oh, yeah, primary March 5th. Uh, But it's 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 really complicated. Right. Like I was reviewing this last night and I know this. I'm like I was a foreign political reporter. You're a political reporter now. Like it's just it's it's delegates and superdelegates and some states are open primaries and some states are closed primaries. Um, So I I don't even know what my first question to you uh, is, is, Colin. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn to a listener question that came in this week. Uh, And the, the question from listener reads, this will be my first year voting in North Carolina as an independent voter. May I vote in either the Republican or Democrat primary Also, can someone address the reasons why an independent voter would desire to vote in either primary? 
I'm going to kick that to you, and then I'll jump in on that. Yeah, so you have a choice here. Uh, if you register unaffiliated, that's the term. Make sure you are registered unaffiliated and not no labels. That's a new party right. that apparently is confusing some voters who think that that's the unaffiliated independent option, and really that's a party that has no primary, no candidate so far. Register as that. They won't be able to give you a ballot at the polls in March. Um but you will have a choice. Uh, if you go in, you'll have a uh, Democratic ballot option, a Republican ballot option, Libertarian ballot option is also uh, one of your choices. Uh, I think there may be some places where there is even a nonpartisan ballot option. If you mm. don't want to vote in a primary that's partisan, but you're unaffiliated and there's some nonpartisan races in your area, I think that's only a few parts of the state. Uh, that's a choice there. Um, so I think if you're unaffiliated, you don't really identify with the party, uh, the most impact you can have is by picking either the Democratic or the Republican ballot uh, and trying to look at particularly races where um, the district is so gerrymandered or the county or city leans a certain way uh, that it's ultimately going to be decided in the primary who gets that seat. There are examples of that for the legislature, for Congress and other things. Um, That may be where you get the most bang for your buck as an independent voter here in North Carolina. Right. And how about the why, right? So I'll, I'll tee up a couple. And I think that there's this is pretty layered or tiered. For a lot of people, I think they look at, uh, you know, a big time race. Again, we don't have a U.S. Senate race in North Carolina this year. But uh, for some people who are middle of the road or they, they might look at the gubernatorial race and go oh, on this Democratic uh, ticket, there's a clear contrast between some of the candidates or conversely with these uh, myriad of Republican candidates running for governor. Somebody might feel particularly strongly about that and jump into it. You don't have to be aligned with them, right? Like I think people vote for candidates in primaries. They also vote against candidates in primaries. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some people who will vote strategically trying to get, if they vote in the other party's primary that they're not planning to vote for in November, they may try to pick the what they think is the least competitive candidate or may they pick the least objectionable candidate uh, that, you know, they're not going to vote for that person come November, uh, but they would like the choice to be between two people who are perhaps yeah. not as objectionable to them as maybe the, the most extreme candidate in that other party. A little bit of context here. We can build on this or I can move on. Um, so the, the question that I receive occasionally is, well, it's a primary. How much is really decided in the primary? We're, we're, we're barreling toward November, aren't we? Uh, and as you alluded to a moment ago, no, not so fast, my friend, not so much. We have 14 congressional districts in North Carolina. And coming out of March 5th, we will almost assuredly know who's going to win in November in 13 of those 14 races because they're so gerrymandered. And it's not just congressional races. It's it's legislative races Yeah, legislative races well. are the same way. As I've, I've been going through the list of, you know, there's going to be 170 legislative districts uh, where the representatives will be chosen at some point this year. And in a lot of them, uh, we printed out there's there's multiple multiple candidates from either party, but the district is drawn in such a way that it's going to decide. I mean, Mary Helen's been covering uh, the Durham County Senate primary between Mike Woodard and uh, uh, activist and I think Obama administration alum, Sophia Chitlick. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to determine you know who represents Durham because Republicans not going to win in Durham. It's a Correct. really blue county. That's right. All the action in Durham is always during the primaries because the Democrats win. And even our... our um what is the word for the school board races? Yeah, the nonpartisan school the board nonpartisan race. yeah. races. The nonpartisan races. Even those are happening at the primary time because that's when they want people to vote because that's when the decisions are made. And just to get back to what you were saying Please. earlier, I mean, I know people in Durham, we know the Democrats are going to win, right? They're thinking of voting in the Republican primary just to cast a ballot against Donald Trump. And I can't imagine that they're alone. So I'm curious how many people actually do that. I mean, I... I I've thought about it over my many years of voting, mm-hmm. and I never have. Mm-hmm. And people talk about it, and it sounds good. But I always wonder, Colin, you would know, or Mary Helen, you apparently as well. But I, it, it feels to me a little bit more like something people talk about but don't actually do. But maybe I'm wrong about that. 
I think it's a statistically small number, um, but certainly, you know, if it's a close race, that could make the difference uh, between, in, in particularly in a race where, um, you know, have likely go to, go to a runoff. I look at like the lieutenant governor's race, 11 candidates yeah. or the 13th congressional, 14th candidates. Those will go to a runoff. And an interesting aspect of that is when we have that runoff race and if it's only on the Republican side, only the unaffiliated voters who picked a Republican ballot in the previous round or didn't vote at all, mm-hmm. get an opportunity to vote in that second race. Um, so that could be another thing where if it's close, those few people can make a difference. Yeah, that's a good point. You're you're almost certainly not going to knock Trump off the ticket. But but when there's 14 candidates, that's you know, you you might have an influence there. Exactly. couple of additional points of context here. Uh, you need 30 percent of the vote plus one to win a primary in North Carolina. We're setting aside presidential uh, because obviously it's part of a larger uh, apparatus. But in North Carolina, if you receive 30% of the vote, plus at least one uh, one additional vote, you win the primary. If it's less than 30% of the vote in a crowded race, which Colin has noted several of, the second place finisher can request a second primary or a runoff primary, and that would take place roughly, I believe, like six to eight weeks later. Yeah, it depends on which race goes to a primary, I think. In some cases, it might be in May. In some cases, it might be in July. There's some weirdness to it, and we won't really know until the results are in for the March primary. Statewide delegates. So we have delegates as we think about how the presidential primary is going to play out here in North Carolina. And statewide delegates are proportionally allocated to candidates receiving 20 percent or more of the vote. Sounds like we just did like a refi on our mortgage, but hopefully that made some sense to people. But that's to say this is not a winner take all state. Not all delegates go uh, to one candidate. And that just to go big picture here for a second, that varies state to state. Like there are 20 states with open primaries. There are 15 states with closed primaries. There are 14 that are like North Carolina that are, that kind of have a hybrid. And this is all barreling toward Republican, a Republican candidate, Donald Trump, obviously the, the, the front runner, trying to get 1,215 delegates. This is just the presidential race. And a Democrat needs 1,968 delegates to secure the Democratic nomination. And there are conventions this summer, Milwaukee and Chicago. That's a lot of like useless, esoteric stuff. But it's just a reminder that this isn't a it's not a clean and easy process. Yeah. Primary. And I think if you're Nikki Haley's campaign, that threshold that you just mentioned is going to be really important, because if she can have even a few delegates, then that sort of puts her in the number two slot, uh, which if Trump continues to uh, on the path that he's on, probably doesn't get you very far. But if something happens where he drops out of the race or he's got some criminal charges to issue or some, deal with her health issues, then that puts her in a really strong spot because she has at least some delegates going into that convention. Participation in the uh, the primary will not be that of the general election, just as a, also another contextual long range uh, reminder. Looking back through my notes here, seeing if there's anything else kind of strange or noteworthy uh, that I can drop on people. And I'll, I'll, I guess I'll also uh, share this. There are 32 statewide delegates uh, in North Carolina and 42 congressional district delegates. Uh, so quick math indicates to me that there are 70 for delegates available in North Carolina. Jason, 30 seconds. Yeah, maybe just one last thing. Uh, Colin talked about earlier, and we talked about this at the break, that uh, there aren't too many competitive uh, races on the Democratic side, but I think side rather, but I think the campaign of Satana DeBerry would would take issue with that. Uh, if to the extent that there is a competitive race over there, I think that's definitely one to look at. Yeah, working on a story on AG. that that we'll have on the air next week here at WUNC because that is a, really a race to watch, I think.
As we've discussed on the Roundup here in recent weeks, this is also the first uh, notable election where voter ID, photo identification, is going to be required in order to cast a ballot. Next week, my colleague Leonita Inge will be taking, excuse me, talking with experts about what to expect. Uh, and she's taking your questions. Got ahead of myself there. Do South at WNC.org. Or you can send us a message on Instagram at Do South Radio. Got questions about that voter ID requirement. We'd love to hear them as we hash that topic out next week. Here with Colin Campbell, Mary Helen Moore, as well as Jason DeBruin. North Carolina Friday News Roundup on Do South Rolls on in a moment on WNC. Welcome back. It's Due South on WNC. I'm Jeff Tabiri here in our Durham studios with Colin Campbell, Mary Helen Moore, and Jason DeBruin. We're going to uh, pinwheel this puppy for a moment and chat about some of what our panelists have been working on this week. Jason, a series about youth mental health facilities is in the queue for you. We're going to get into it, but just give us a three-sentence synopsis to get us started. What is the series about? It's about PRTF, Psychiatric Residential Treatment Facilities. So these are kids with mental health diagnoses, behavioral health diagnoses who need severe intensive care. We know that they all oftentimes end up in emergency rooms. That's the wrong place of care for them. However, these PRTFs are also not great. They need a lot of work, and oftentimes kids do not get the right care there. North Carolina could, and many advocates say, should be doing more to provide in-home and community-based care. But that's not happening. Definitely more than three sentences, but we'll let it slide. Um, how is the funding? How is the supply um, as we think about um, the, the, the apparatus, what's available to people in need? Even what we have uh, that advocates say is bad, there's not even enough of that. So we're even sending kids out of state, um, in some cases as far away as Utah. Um, and these are sometimes kids in DSS custody. And so it's honestly, I've been saying this, it's, it's pretty difficult to imagine a more disenfranchised person than a young child with a behavioral health or mental health diagnosis that's in DSS custody, foster care, in a PRTF in Utah. And that's really the person that I'm thinking about when I'm doing the series. Are there changes, proposals on the table, initiatives, advocates screaming, shouting, and I don't mean screaming in a bad way, but 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 from the mountaintop saying, this is what we need to do? Like, what, what's the inertia here? Yeah, and that's, that's kind of the big thing that I'm hearing from people, particularly at, say, Disability Rights North Carolina. They're saying, this is not a black box. We know the answer. We know what kind of care works. We're just not spending the money in the right places. These PRTFs are getting in the neighborhood of $100 million per year. Disability Rights North Carolina wants to see much of that funding diverted to in-home, community-based care, where you're helping parents uh, with, with a kid with behavioral health needs, where you're helping a foster family that has taken in a kid with behavioral health needs. But that's not happening. There is some money on the horizon. I think we all know about the truly historic investment that the North Carolina General Assembly made last year in healthcare. Medicaid is being expanded. Medicaid providers are getting uh, uh, higher reimbursement rates, including for mental health care. These are all good things. But I hesitate to say that the cavalry is coming. You know, many people would say, to be fair, more than a drop in the bucket, so to speak. But in no way is this going to be enough. And certainly this is just a one-time investment. And these investments need to continue for years and decades. Series will be heard on a radio station near you next week, week after? Probably not next week. Probably looking at two weeks. Um, But yeah, and hopefully we'll be on Due South to talk about it and any other channels that WNC has me on. And this is it. This is this is the end of your reporting. That's true. This is the That's end true. of two decades of reporting as you congratulations move over to an editor role here at WNC. You're feeling a little nostalgic. Well, very nostalgic. And although I am very happy and very excited to be t- taking this new role, particularly as we talk about trying to get uh, WNC on some more social channels, 
I very much will miss the work that I've done on the reporting side, some of the investigative work. Uh, partnered with a lot of different people, done work on my own, and I think there's a lot that I and we can be proud of. So I'll be sad to leave that sort of in my rearview mirror, but definitely will be happy uh, to think about the good work that we've done. Jason DeBruin, health reporter still for a little while longer here at WNC, former data reporter as well. Uh, Mary Helen Moore, Durham reporter for the News and Observer. I want to chat about a couple of different stories uh, that you have had eyes and ears on this week. We're going to uh, set aside for a moment Shot Spotter. That'll mean something to some of our listeners. But let's start with Leandro. This is the big 30-year-old education case uh, that was born out of five rural counties in, yes, 1994. Still not entirely decided. Uh, it was back before the state Supreme Court this week. Remind us, please, what are the seven state Supreme Court justices kind of weighing and considering as this case, more context, because gosh, it's a meaty one. Um, it's a case all about providing a sound and basic education to K-12 through public school kids in North Carolina. What are the justices thinking about this time? So what the justices are thinking about is a very narrow question, which is, can North Carolina's judiciary branch tell the legislature to pay school districts a certain amount of money? So the first big kind of tranche of money is $678 million. Um, it was ordered to be paid in 2022, and it has not been paid. And it's so salient because what we're talking about in Durham right now, you know, if they had this Leandro money, man, things would get a lot easier really quickly. I, I kind of liken it to if you've ever been poor in your life, if you've mm -hmm. ever been poor, you know how hard things are, and then you get to a point in your life where you have enough money man, things get a lot easier really, mm. really quickly. And I think a lot of people in Durham feel that way because most salaries uh, come from state money. This Leandro case is loaded with context. Uh, and what you're just alluding to there, just to mirror it back to you for a moment, there are these questions about funding and appropriation. And there's also uh, kind of a big looming constitutional question about at what point, if ever, can a judiciary uh, tell a legislature, specifically in North Carolina in this case, hey, you got to you got to appropriate some money here because what legislators uh, have long held is that we have the power of the purse. You can't make us do this effectively. Uh, but as we're talking about here, there are real life impacts and effects of not adequately funding schools or funding schools to the level that experts, not me, say they ought to be uh, funded at. So uh, do we have any sense of when a ruling from the state Supreme Court might come in this latest Leandro uh, argument? With a big caveat that I don't cover statewide education, but I have been reading about it. Um, a decision is expected this year. I think the next, the earliest it could come would be um, towards the end of March. Okay. Uh, we did, reminder, programming reminder, host an hour-long conversation looking in-depth at the Leandro case, the arguments, potential impact. Uh, that was on Wednesday here on Due South, so uh, please catch up with that if you have not already, DueSouthRadio.org. Mary Helen, let's stick uh, with a story out of Durham. Shot spotter, reminder to listeners and to me, this is a controversial gunshot detection software that the city of Durham piloted last year. Proponents say violent crime is down with the implementation of this program. And a Duke University study uh, shows some positive metrics. Opponents say property crime has risen and they're holding a general skepticism about continuing to have shot spotter used by Durham law enforcement. Please unpack a little bit further. 
Yeah, I will say, so ShotSpotter rebranded last year to Sound Thinking, but everyone still knows that it's ShotSpotter, so I'm going to keep calling it ShotSpotter for now, at least. Um, that is a rich, let me just, that's rich remark. ShotSpotter to Sound Thinking? I think ShotSpotter wow. has become really poisonous to a sound, lot of people. Sound Thinking sounds like a public radio show. <laughs> Not something used to hear gunshots. Mary Helen, please continue. Yeah, so um, uh, I will say... Some of the controversy is also because these sensors are installed in areas that have a lot of gunfire. And a lot of those areas are poor. A lot of them have disproportionate numbers of people of color. And people are worried about surveillance and over-policing in those areas. And that's been a chief concern in Durham. So Durham is considering extending this for another three years. They asked Duke to analyze this data, mm-hmm. tell us what our first year's pilot was like. And there are some really interesting data points in there. Um, they pointed out that um, it helped increase arrests, evidence collection, and um, the number of confirmed shootings. There were many that had no corresponding 911 calls, so Hmm. people wouldn't have known about them. And they credit it with saving one person's life because they got there faster and um, were able to get them to a hospital. But there is some other really interesting data, which is more than 90% of shot spotter alerts that had no corresponding 911 call were essentially wild goose chases. There never any confirmation that that was a shooting. Mm. And that's true for even cases with 911 calls, but it's significantly higher for shots. More than alerts. 90% just to so run that police back. just get sent out there to say, like, somewhere in this area there might be a shooting, so they're just driving around, walking around, looking for signs of violence of some kind, I guess. That's right. In Durham, they send two police cars, no lights, no sirens, and they just try and find what it is. Jason? And so so maybe uh, we didn't get into it in detail, but these are sensors that are placed in certain parts of the uh, city that are supposed to detect specifically a gunshot. But if you can imagine what a gunshot sounds like, there's a lot of things that also sound like that. Fireworks, for example, nail guns. There's been documented times across the country where people on construction sites using nail guns have set off shot spotter that is then, you know, sent police who are then, you know, again, on a wild goose chase. Also, there's a lot of evidence to show that police far more likely show up to these uh, you know, to these calls or whatever uh, more amped up and are more likely to then pull out their own guns. So there are some advocates who argue that communities are actually less safe because if there is a false alarm or even if there's a true alarm uh, that shot spotter uh, signals, that police show up uh, far more likely to draw their own weapons. So there's, there's, there's mounting evidence by advocates uh, who say that shot spotter should be done away with completely. Jason DeBruin, Colin Campbell, Mary Helen Moore here uh, on the North Carolina News Roundup here in Due South. You mentioned before, Mary Helen Moore, one more question on this, the the 90% uh, inability to figure out where the shots came from. Do we have any statistic about how frequently when the shot spotter, good communicator, whatever its new silly name is, uh, how often that is actually a gunshot, to Jason's point? Like if it goes off a thousand times, how many of those... Uh, sensor alerts are actually a gunshot. Do we know? Um, I would that not be the other end of the ninety percent? Well, to uh, Jason, go so ahead. I can answer this. There's actually a pretty interesting podcast that I just listened to on that did a deep dive on all of this, and I'm sorry I can't remember which one it was. If it was NPR or something else, but uh, the CEO and the executives for ShotSpotter have actually refused to turn over this information. Mm. They apparently have it, and advocates have asked for it, uh, but they will not give. 100% they will not show their data. So everything that they present to city councils is information that, uh, you know, they have sort of like 
collected and packaged together. And this is what we want to tell you, not here's our raw data. We do have raw data for Durham. It's but, in okay. from, but that's study. from the Duke study, right? That's not from Shot From Spotter. the Duke study, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Might not have expected uh, the white public radio host to say this on the program today, but I'd welcome Shot Spotter in my neighborhood uh, between an occasional gunshot. Uh, I live in the county in Wakeford, just the record. But the occasional uh, the occasional fireworks that go off, uh, as you note. And then uh, recently this week, Karen across the street has had her roof getting redone. And the number of nails that started at about 7, 10 in the morning. I wouldn't have mind the police coming and just <laughs> shutting down the roof replacement for an hour or two. I'm being sassy here on the North Carolina <laughs> News Roundup. Colin, let's transition. Um, I, I want to chat a little bit more about politics. Politics is, reminder, a rich person's game. Plenty of candidates loan themselves money. This is a, a, a legal and common practice in campaigning. Uh, remind us why candidates loan themselves money. It's really the only way to kind of get in the game without doing smaller dollar donations. And they're not really small. I mean, you can give up to, I think, five or $6,000 uh, to a candidate on an individual level. Um, but only the candidates themselves, generally, unless you use some kind of you know super PAC apparatus, can give larger amounts. So if you're in a uh, very time-compressed primary window, which is this year, I mean, we got the redistricting maps in October, right. candidate filing this in December, the primaries in March, there's not a lot of time to call people up and say, hey, can you donate to my campaign? It's a whole lot easier if you have the means to say, I'm going to drop $2 million of my own money or 200000 or 500000 These are all amounts that candidates, uh, particularly in the uh, 13th Congressional District, district are spending on their own campaigns. Start getting those ads on the air, get your message out there without have a whole, spending a whole lot of time dialing for dollars on the front end. What are some of the most notable examples or amounts of self-funding that you've seen thus far this cycle? Uh, so the biggest ones I've seen, uh, $1.25 million from uh, State Representative John Bradford. He's running for the uh, open congressional seat currently held by Dan Bishop, kind of runs from Charlotte to Lumberton. Um, and then I just saw the numbers out this week from Kelly Daughtry, uh, who's a Smithfield attorney running in the 13th district. She's uh, loaned her campaign about $2 million. Uh, so that appears to be the uh, lead spender so far and uh, obviously flooding the airwaves with TV ads uh, to get their name out there in what's a very crowded congressional field. Kelly Daughtry, daughter of Leo Daughtry, former majority leader in the North Carolina House, going back about 20 years. Uh, And I just want to further illustrate this, and please fact check me here, Colin. Candidates loan themselves money. They get in the game. They show, hey, I've got X number of dollars in the bank. I'm a real candidate. I'm serious. Then, and they are serious, they raise money and they can pay themselves back ostensibly with campaign donations. That's legal. Yeah, they legally can do that. Many don't because they uh, put so much of their money, own money in there, there's no way for them to pay themselves back. But they do, certainly have the option if they can raise the money elsewhere. I want to read one little uh, just synopsis from uh, some of your reporting this week. Uh, it kind of goes in the other direction. State Representative Erin Parre of Holly Springs, that's in Southern Wake County, was also running before she dropped out in November. She told the WNC Politics podcast that money was one reason she decided to s- seek re-election in the state house instead of a congressional race. Frankly, we would have to spend, we would have had to spend our entire life savings on this race, Paré told Colin Campbell. And to me, that's not a smart thing to do when you have kids at home. It's a very expensive race. I would imagine one of the most expensive in the state, maybe even in the country. And she would have run in that congressional race that you were just- And would have been the only uh, elected official with experience in a legislative body in that race. Uh, She's not in there. She's running for re-election to Rousey instead going to tick through hopefully a couple of more things. Final moments here of our North Carolina roundup of news and politics here on Due South. Just want to acknowledge a statue that was unveiled in Greensboro this week. Uh, It is uh, for Henry Fry, a living uh, legend in North Carolina circles. Uh, I've had the opportunity to speak with him before. I just want to let you hear Henry Fry's voice. I believe it'd be better 
for 10 people who weren't in properly registered to vote to vote than it would be to turn down 500 people because of literacy tests and various other things of that nature. I can't do Henry Fry justice in two minutes, but I'll tell you just briefly, he's 91 years old. Uh, when I interviewed him a few uh, years ago, he was 87. He was still swimming three times a week. Uh, just a, a really fascinating and interesting man. He child of the Jim Crow South, an Air Force veteran, uh, and he faced literacy tests. Um, he faced uh, challenges at the polls into the 1950s. Uh, this after he became the first black legislator in North Carolina in the 20th century. Uh, he was the, the first black candidate to win statewide election uh, in North Carolina in the 20th century, and he is the, the first ever um, jurist, uh, black judge, to serve as North Carolina's chief justice. Uh, a wonderful interview, uh, and I uh, just wanted to note that uh, Greensboro uh, honored him and his wife with uh, a statue earlier this week. Uh, I don't know if we have time to hit on what is uh, on your docket next week, but I'm going to give you all 10 to 15 seconds. Tell me something you're tracking next week in the world of news and journalism. Jason DeBruin? Well, I'm switching job roles, honestly, so I, I've got to just track what He's I need to do. Right? I've, I've got editor meetings. Late lunch for Jason. Colin, what's on your what's on your tab? Looking for some last-minute surprises, maybe some outside groups uh, funding some last-minute ads in the uh, various primaries ahead of primary day. We're uh, just over two weeks out. Mary Helen? Local primaries and schools. Local primaries and schools. Makes sense to me. Sounds good. Uh, as always, we appreciate you sticking with us throughout the week and on our North Carolina News and Politics Roundup. Many a thank you uh, to send around as we head you into the weekend. Caitlin Bird joined us earlier in the hour from the Charleston Post and Courier. Mary Helen Moore, Colin Campbell, and Jason DeBruin have been your panelists, your guests on the North Carolina News Roundup. On the other side of the glass, I'm looking at Cole Del Charco and Aaron Kiever, our Producer and executive producer Aaron Kiever, folks, turns 40 on Saturday. Happy birthday to our executive producer. For our technical director, Denarius Thomas, support today from Jenny Lawson, and also for our other producers, Rachel McCarthy and Stacia Brown. And not to mention, not to forget, my co-host, Leonita Inge. My name is Jeff Tavieri. We'll talk to you again on Monday. <laughs>